tell you a story. It's a story about six people who died violently in Germany in 1922. It's a story about an investigation that went on for decades, but never identified the perpetrator. It's a story that has become a legend. I want you to come with me into history, into the long, cold dark. story of the murders at Hendrik Haifek. This episode contains information about sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. There's a map of Hendrik Haifek and the surrounding area in the show notes. It'll be useful in understanding where the farm was and the proximity of the neighbors. In this episode, we'll meet Maria Baumgartner, the woman who came to Hendrik Haifek on March 31st, 1922, and died there within 24 hours. We'll also meet some of the local figures in the case, neighbors and business associates of the Grubers, to try to get an understanding of who the Grubers were and how they were perceived in their community. Maria Baumgartner was the only person outside the Gruber family who died at Hinterkaifeck. She arrived at the farm on March 31, 1922, only a few hours before the murders. Maria was the replacement for the previous maid, Crescens Reiger, who had worked at Hinterkaifeck from 1920 through August of 1921. The position had remained vacant since Reiger's departure. In the aftermath of the murders, rumors flew that Reiger had left Hinterkaifeck because she heard noises, footsteps, and voices in the attic, and she thought that the farm was haunted. When she was interrogated on April 24, 1922, she said she left Hinterkaifeck because a local man, Anton Pickler, was harassing her. He was coming to her window at night, trying to get into the house, and frightening her with demands for sex. Reger also stated that Bickler threatened her and the Gruber family during these nocturnal visits. I thought he was going to kill me, Reger told police. I took Bickler for a violent person and said so to the Grubers and Mrs. Gabriel. I told them that I would not stay with them anymore, otherwise we would all be killed by Bickler one day. There's no record of any other maid or domestic servant working at Hinterkaifeck between August of 1921 and March 31, 1922, though there were several short-term farm laborers. Maria Baumgardner came to Hinterkaifeck through the services of an employment agent who arranged for Victoria to hire Maria. Maria's sister, Francisca Schaefer, seems to have functioned as a go-between in this arrangement. In 1925, Francisca recalled that Maria had stayed with herself and her husband Joseph for two weeks while she was between jobs in 1922. Francisca had assisted Maria in her search for work and accompanied her to Hinterkaifeck on the last day of her life. Maria and Francisca reached the farm around 5 p.m. on March 31st. They met Cecilia Gruber in the courtyard. Andreas and Victoria came in from the fields about an hour later, and Francisca departed the farm shortly afterward. When she was interviewed again in 1932, Francisca recalled the isolation of Hinterkaifeck. 
The courtyard seemed to me so incredibly lonely, and I was strangely touched by the fact that my sister called to me again as I was leaving to wave goodbye. Later, a rumor circulated saying that Francisca had claimed to see a man watching her from the roof of the farmhouse as she walked away. Francisca denied this. If people say that, they made it up themselves. I didn't see anyone else in the yard, either. Maria Baumgartner was born on October 2, 1876, in Kubak. She was one of six children, of whom four survived to adulthood. Maria was born with an unspecified mental or cognitive disability. She also seems to have had physical impairments that limited her work prospects in adulthood. Her brother-in-law, Joseph Schaefer, remembered, she was somewhat mentally impaired and had a limping gait due to the shortening of her right leg. Maria lived at home until her parents died. Maria's oldest sister, Balbina, died during World War I, and none of the other siblings were willing to take on the family farm. The property was sold, and Maria went out to work as a housemaid. Service jobs for women did not pay well, especially after the end of the war, and Maria was unable to save any money for her future. Before coming to Hinterkaifeck, she worked in Unterwittelsbach, but she was terminated because, quote, the mayor did not want a crippled person in the community. This attitude toward a person with a visible disability was pretty common in post-war Germany. Germany in those years was a society deeply concerned with health and breeding. Having a disabled person in the community was considered socially dangerous, largely because she might have children who might also be disabled. The social dangers were twofold. Disabled persons were considered a drain on public resources in a time of rampant inflation and its attendant austerity measures. And the perpetuation of congenital disabilities was seen as a threat to the future health of the German populace. Maria was registered with the government as an invalid due to her mental and physical disabilities, but she consistently found employment in service. She supported herself and engaged in social life, especially through the church. Still, Maria told her sister that she felt uprooted after the sale of the family farm. Francisca recalled, she visited me in Muleride and complained that she no longer had a real home. Like Victoria Gruber, Maria Baumgartner was a woman apart, socially othered due to her physical disabilities and struggling to build a place for herself in the world. Maria never married. According to her family, she never had a romantic life of any kind. Maria had no love affairs, her sister said. She has never dealt with men. On the contrary, she complained about them. Notably, a farmhand in Eknach attempted to court Maria, but she firmly rejected his advances, and she complained to her sister that the man persecuted her with his attentions. Francisca described Maria as a pious, church-going woman who worked hard and didn't engage in any immoral pastimes. Francisca made a particular point of insisting that Maria did not go to taverns or dance clubs. Maria's surviving siblings struggled with alcohol abuse, and Francisca apparently engaged the services of a psychic or tarot card reader later in life, so this description of Maria not only reinforces an ideal of a hard-working, morally upright woman, it further sets her apart from her own family's habits. 
This is the woman who died on her first night at Hinterkaifeck. Industrious, religious, as independent as possible given her circumstances. At the same time isolated, adrift from her family of origin and unsettled. Even in death, Maria was separated from her family. She was buried in Weidhofen with the Grubers. While Francisca makes no mention of their family relationship in any of her depositions, the simple fact that Maria and Francisca kept in touch and helped each other when possible seems to be an oddity in the Baumgartner family. The surviving Baumgartner siblings were estranged after their parents died. Francisca stated that her brothers would often be out of touch for years or even decades, and both liked to drink. But the sisters remained close enough that Francisca knew about Maria's various places of employment and her personal life. After the murders at Hinterkaifeck, Francisca was the only member of Maria's family to be directly informed. She traveled to the farm to identify Maria's body, which she recognized by her shoes, her clothes, and her bulging lips. Francisca also identified the rucksack Maria had carried to Hinterkaifeck, it was one that she had borrowed from a friend. The bag had never been unpacked. In the aftermath of the murders, Maria's brother Narcissus learned about Maria's death from newspaper articles rather than from family. Francisca said, I couldn't even notify our brothers of our sister's murder because I didn't know where they were. He told me that he only found out from the newspaper that our sister Maria was murdered in Hinterkaifeck. But where he was, how he read this, I don't know. Francisca was interviewed by investigators repeatedly between 1922 and 1932. Her account of Maria's final day remained consistent throughout. However, a memo written by George Reingruber and the investigative team casts a little bit of doubt on Francisca's reliability, or at least her mental stability, after Maria's death. They noted that Francisca was, quote, a somewhat limited person who likes to talk and drink and not infrequently engages in nonsensical chatter. This was based on a visit Francisca paid to a tarot card reader. Mrs. Schaefer said that she had had cards read and it was said that there were three perpetrators. The investigators quickly determined that the results of a tarot reading were irrelevant to the investigation. But the memo is useful because it gives us a glimpse into Francisca's mental and emotional state after the murders. In her grief, and in the state of ambiguity that plagues the survivors of any unsolved homicide, she looked for solace in a procedure that promised answers of any sort. The area around Hinterkaifeck has never been heavily populated. As of 2019, the population of Weidhofen was 2,323. In 1919, the population was 503. There was a single school and a single Catholic church. From the surviving witness accounts, it seems to have been a tightly knit community in which locals at least knew each other by sight and by reputation. Strangers stood out. Who knew the Gruber family? who knew their habits and their routines. We know that the worst of their lives, the horrors Andreas inflicted on the women in his family, were generally talked about in the local area. 
but who really understood the details? Crescent's Riger lived at Hinterkaifeck from sometime in 1920 through most of 1921. She was pregnant when she arrived, and she gave birth to her daughter there in March of 1921. According to Crescent, she spent all her time at the farm, including Sundays and public holidays. She would have been aware of every visitor, every small event of daily life at Hinterkaifeck. She appears to have had a good relationship with Victoria Gabriel. They were both working women and single mothers. They may have bonded over their shared experiences. Riger described Victoria in 1952. As far as I know, Victoria never left, unless she went to church in Weidhofen. During my time at Hinterkaifeck, a suitor came once and wanted to marry Mrs. Gabriel. I don't remember today who he was, if he was from Weidhofen or Kopenbach. It was a farmer's son. But old Gruber knew how to prevent this by saying that Victoria was not home. When the visitor asked about her return, Gruber said that she would not be home before evening. In reality, however, Gruber had locked his daughter in the closet with her consent. What does this incident reveal about Victoria? Was she genuinely afraid of the unnamed suitor who came to call on her? Or was she more afraid of Andreas and only complying in order to avoid his wrath? Riger was also a direct witness to Andreas' sexual abuse. She repeatedly testified to surprising Andreas in the act of assaulting Victoria. This might have been enough to drive anyone away from Hinterkaifeck, but Riger stayed until Anton Bickler frightened her with his nocturnal visits. Riger later recalled that there were few visitors to Hinterkaifeck, and that the Grubers were generally not well-liked locally. They gave nothing to the travelers who came there. They didn't let any of them into the house either. Only once did it happen that an old man, who looked tired and was foraging blackberries, spent the night in Hinterkaifeck. Because of their stinginess, they were very unpopular, and nobody liked them. Still, Riger could not name anyone who might have a specific grudge against the family. While they were not popular, no one seemed openly hostile. Riger was in the best position to see how the Grubers got along with their field hands and closest neighbors. Among these, of course, was Lorenz Schlittenbauer. He was closest to the family by virtue of proximity, and also through his short, disastrous romantic relationship with Victoria. According to Riger, Schlittenbauer was not a guest in the farmhouse between 1920 and 1921. As long as I worked at Hinterkaifeck, he never went there. Old Gruber and Schlittenbauer talked to each other, but the women didn't talk with him. Whether Victoria avoided Schlittenbauer deliberately, or out of fear of Andreas, is of course now impossible to determine. Schlittenbauer's own testimony seems to support Riger's account of the Gruber's habits. When he was asked if he visited Joseph Gabriel, or referred to him as his son, Schlittenbauer told investigators that he didn't visit the boy, but would sometimes meet him if he happened to be working in the vicinity of Hinterkaifeck. It seems that he was not a frequent guest in the Gruber house even before 1920. Schlittenbauer claimed that his encounters and conversations with Victoria between 1917 and 1918 happened at his own farm. Any conversations he had with Andreas appear to have happened out of doors. They met frequently in the course of their work because their farms shared a border. During police questioning in 1922, Schlittenbauer claimed that he had no lasting anger toward Victoria or Andreas over Joseph's paternity, 
or his thwarted marriage plans. He also could not think of anyone who might want the Grubers dead. While the Grubers' general avoidance of other people gave them few opportunities to make friends, it also gave them few opportunities to make enemies. On the other side of Schlittenbauer's property was the smallhold farm of Michael Pohl. He claimed to have taken note of an extraordinary silence at Hinterkaifeck on April 1st and 3rd, when he had been working in his own fields near the Gruber farmstead. Despite his farm's proximity to Hinterkaifeck, Pohl could provide little information about the Grubers beyond what the community at large already knew. They kept to themselves. They maybe had a large amount of money in the house and they had fought with Schlittenbauer over Joseph. Paul seemed to know more about the family dog than the family, and he couldn't think of anyone who might hold a grudge against them. Jacob Siegel, one of the neighbors who made the initial discovery of the Gruber's bodies, was able to describe the family's habit of locking their dog in the stable every night, but little else about the way they lived. The extraordinary silence Pohl described at the farmstead seems not to have seriously disturbed any of the neighbors. Richard Pilemeyer, the Newburgh public prosecutor, noted in his 1926 report that, quote, various people passed the property and noticed that it was calm, but nobody took any occasion to look around the property as the residents lived very secluded and had no real intercourse with anyone. In particular, old Gruber was considered stingy and shy of people. Joseph Meyer, the mailman, was at Hinterkaifeck frequently in the course of his duties. He passed the farm every day, and of course stopped when he had papers or letters for the Grubers. Meyer recalled in 1952 that Andreas and Victoria were approachable people. You could talk to them, even if they were very private. Meyer was familiar with the working habits of the family, and he remembered regularly seeing Joseph Gabriel in his carriage through the kitchen window. He left the mail and newspapers in this window, if no one was outside when he came. The Gruber's dog was apparently familiar enough with Meyer that it was not aggressive toward him, although it was wary of strangers in general. Andreas apparently felt comfortable enough with Meyer to share his anxieties about potential burglars on the property. Meyer told police, in the month of March 1922, I was asked repeatedly by Old Gruber and Mrs. Gabriel whether I had seen anyone on the property, because they believed that there was someone there. Around this time, a copy of the Munich newspaper was found at the Hinterkaifeck property, either by Gruber himself or by Mrs. Gabriel. At that time, they told me that there were tracks in the snow which led into the barn, but they found nothing in a search. Beyond this, Meyer was unable to provide substantial information about the Grubers or their daily lives. He seemed to like them, but they were not close friends, and he could not name any potential suspects in the murders. Cecilia Assam Staringer, Victoria's older half-sister, was the only regular family visitor recorded at Hinterkaifeck. However, their relationship seems to have been distant. Cecilia told investigators in 1922 that she could not tell them what, if anything, was missing from the farmhouse. Cecilia reported that she had loaned Andreas a large amount of money to pay for a threshing machine in February of 1922, but she wasn't able to provide much other information about the family, 
or who might have wanted them dead. Cecilia's surviving statement to investigators is short. It's only a few sentences. She repeatedly referred to the Grubers and her mother as the dead or the deceased, and she did not give the impression that they were close. By the time of the murders, Cecilia had been married and living in another town for 20 years. Andrea's family seemed to have been disconnected from Hinterkaifeck during Andrea's lifetime. We do know that he was in contact with his younger brother, Bernard, in the weeks before the murders. In February 1922, Andreas and Bernard apparently met with a young man whom Andreas was considering hiring. Bernard recalled Andreas telling him in mid-March that the man had worked for a short while at Hinterkaifeck, but he had decamped for another job. Joseph Schrassestaller, the son of a smallhold farmer in Groburn, recalled re- meeting this same farmhand at a dance in Weidhofen in February of 1922. He gave the same description as Bernard. The man was young, husky with a round face, and beardless. Joseph knew the young man was employed at Hinterkaifeck and asked where he came from. The young man replied, If I told you, you'd laugh at me. Joseph said he felt that the young man wasn't quite right. Neither he nor Bernard could recall the young man's name, and there's no other mention of him in the surviving records. Bernard Gruber moved to Hinterkaifeck after the Grubers were buried and managed the estate for several months while it was probated. Eventually, he sold the farm to Joseph, Carl Gabriel's brother, in September of 1922. Carl Gabriel Sr., Victoria's father-in-law, appears in the Hinterkaifeck records at only two moments, the marriage of his son Carl Jr. to Victoria, and in May of 1922, when he filed a complaint with the district court, alleging that he and his wife were the sole heirs to the Hinterkaifeck estate. This complaint was rejected. The estate was turned over to Andreas and Cecilia's surviving relatives. Carl Gabriel Sr. and his son Joseph eventually settled for purchasing Hinterkaifeck for 3 million marks. They tore the house down in 1923 and used the building materials to construct barns on their own homestead in Log. Carl Sr. doesn't seem to have been very close to his granddaughter, Celie, or to have kept in contact with Victoria after Carl Jr.'s death. There's no record of an interrogation of Carl Sr. after the murders. His interest in the Gruber family seems to have begun and ended with access to their farm. Joseph Schrittenlocker worked as a seasonal field hand at Hinterkaifeck, he was one of the first of the locals who flocked to the farm after the bodies were discovered. In 1951, he recalled that Cecilia Gruber was in charge of domestic affairs, while Andreas and Victoria managed the agricultural labor and worked alongside their field hands. Old Gruber was a helpful man, Schrittenlocker told investigators. He helped everyone out. If you worked for him, he paid well, but the food was less commendable. This seems to have been a common complaint among the workers at Hinterkaifeck. Despite their purported wealth, the Grubers did not feed their laborers, their domestic servants, or even their children very well. Johann Freundel, a forester from Grobern, summed up the Gruber family's general attitude toward the world in 1951. I have to describe the people from Hinterkaifeck as a bit strange. If you walked past the house, 
they preferred to go back into the house rather than talking to anyone. The Grubers lived the same way they died, isolated from the world. Next time, on Long Cold Dark, we'll walk through the events of March 31st through April 4th, 1922, the murders, and the immediate aftermath. I'm C.S. Frank. Thanks for listening. <laughs>